0: Stand for the scripture reading. This is Luke 15, uh, verses 11 through 20. Jesus continued There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and while living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him,
1: Thank you, Brent, for the prayer and for the Scripture reading, and thank you, Jeff, once again for leading us in singing. Let's open our Bibles up to Luke chapter 15, and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we, we trust you and we, we seek this, this, um, this, this path to walk that brings glory to you, a path in which we follow you, a path that you have blazed for us in the faith through your Son, Jesus, we pray in all of our coming and going, all of our speaking, all of our thinking, and all of our emotional life and affections, that we will emulate Jesus in all that we do. This is our life, Father. We recognize that. And, and we, we hear You teach us through Your Word, Father. And we're thankful that You have, have strengthened us in the inner person through Your Spirit. And Father, as we approach this this great parable, it's with uh, with great humility, and with tremendous desire, Father, that You bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear. For we owe so much, Father, want want to glorify You with our life. That the more that we we understand the cross, and the more that we understand Your grace to us, the more that we want uh, Jesus to be seen in us, and the precious nature, the the joy, the the, the treasure that Jesus is to us, the blessing that He is to us, to be seen in every circumstance that we live. To this end, Father, we ask for Your blessing tonight. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Once again, we are studying the parable of the prodigal son, which is uh, Jesus' most famous parable. As you remember at the beginning of the parable, Jesus is sitting with some Pharisees, and also some people that the Pharisees consider to be unsavory, to be unclean, to not be the right kind of people to be seen with. And because of that, what Luke tells us is that the Pharisees are muttering under their breath. They, they mutter. And this parable that Jesus tells, actually the three stories that Jesus tells about a lost sheep and a lost coin and this lost son, is a response to their muttering about these particular individuals that Jesus is sitting with. And the parable is about how God's wonderful grace creates a a beautiful, unique community. Now, just about everyone who knows this parable knows that it's really about forgiveness. And so we're going to ask really two questions tonight that deal with forgiveness. The first is, what does the parable teach us about forgiveness, which is the most basic question we can ask about forgiveness as it pertains to Luke chapter 15 and the story of the parable son. But secondly, and this I think is is where this, this teaching, this parable enriches our lives. The question is, what kind of church would we be if we took the teaching of Jesus about forgiveness seriously? And there are three basic areas. We learn something about forgiveness in this parable. The first is this. Forgiveness is an audaciously assertive action. Forgiveness is an audaciously assertive action. In the parable, the father runs to the son and and pounces on him and kisses him. Now what is a typical father going to think when he sees his prodigal son, that is, a son that has gone off, kind of gone off the the reservation a little bit. The word prodigal really refers to the lavishness in which this son has lived his life and squandering uh, his inheritance. And now he sees this, this, this wayward son who has humiliated the family, has taken a portion of the family fortune, thus putting the family at risk, and he has run off to a foreign country and is now walking back into town from only God knows where and what. What is he going to be thinking? Junior must be repenting. That's not what he thinks, at least... I, I, I hate to say it, but I'm probably a pretty typical father. That's not what I would be thinking. What is the most rational thing to assume? Junior is coming back for more what? Money. One of my favorite authors uh, over the over the years is, is Steinbeck. One of my favorite books is uh, by Steinbeck is is Cannery Row. And there's this passage at the beginning of Cannery Row in which. Uh, as, as Steinbeck is, is beautifully describing, you know, life at the beginning of the morning in Cannery Row, he describes Lee, who is this Asian grocer, who who has kind of this this base that is set up by the cash register. As he looks out over the grocery store, and every time he sees Mac the hobo come through the door, his radar goes up, because Lee thinks Mac is only coming into the store to see what he can beg, borrow, or steal from Lee, and he's right. And this is what a typical father is probably going to think when he sees the prodigal son coming home. He's after more. He needs more. He needs something else. And yet the father in this parable does not find out what has transpired in the thinking of the son. He gets no explanation and yet runs out to meet him and pounces on him and kisses him. Literally, he races. Off of the porch, he jumps on this boy's neck, literally in the language, he is on this boy's neck and he kisses him. Now this is extremely startling behavior from a Middle Eastern patriarch. He doesn't make the boy ask for forgiveness, he gives it. The father is showing this audacious, assertive forgiveness. You know, he's not leaning on the railing of the porch muttering to himself. If Junior comes back and grovels, well then maybe, just maybe, if he says the right things and I kind of sense some humility about him, I might forgive him. Oh no, without the condition of repentance, he forgives him. That's why it's audacious. That's why it's audacious. Why would Jesus talk about forgiveness like that in this parable? Well, believe it or not, it's not only in this parable that he talks about forgiveness in this way. He talks about forgiveness like that in this parable because that's the way he talks about forgiveness everywhere else that he he teaches about it in the New Testament. Mark chapter 11, verse 25, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. If you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. Jesus does not say that if the person comes around and asks for forgiveness, then maybe you can give him or her a second chance. He says you are to forgive him. Now, as you know, that's not generally how we operate. We stand on our porch and we debate who started what and never take responsibility for our actions or our attitudes. You know, if maybe they make this right, maybe if they do the right thing, they say the right kind of thing, they say the magic phrase, then maybe I'll forgive them. Jesus says you don't wait. You don't wait for them to do something. You forgive. You offer love. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, If your brother has done something to hurt you, then you are to go to him and talk about it. And if he listens to you, then you've won your brother back. And right after that, he tells a parable about forgiveness as a a way or a a quality, a characteristic of life. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, If you're offering your gift at the altar, that, that is, if you're... You know, thinking God thoughts because you're at worship and, and you're, you're thinking about God and all of a sudden there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar first. First, before you even finish worship. Go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now I think that this text teaches us two really important things. If you've been hurt, you forgive. Forgive. And if you hurt someone, then you go and you seek forgiveness. The ball is always in your court. That's why the forgiveness is not just audacious, it's assertive. It's always your move. The ball is always in your court. It doesn't matter who starts it. it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't matter who started it. you know uh, in and in, in, in doing marital counseling from time time to time. Uh, you, you know what happens is, is usually, um, you know, the couple wants to come in and they want to they want to talk about what the other person has done, and you listen to this side for about five minutes and you listen to that side for about five minutes and you know you don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure out a lot of times that you know it boils down to one or two things that need to be maybe made healthy in that relationship that is you know and because it's not healthy it's creating a thousand aggravations and a thousand frustrations and a thousand fights every day. But you you, you don't need to listen to the the litany of every past wrong to figure out what's happening. And at some point you say, you know what, if this this marriage is going to make it, you need to realize two things. Number one, only God can sort it out. Only God can sort it out. I mean, even if you have the facts laid out in front of you 100% that everybody agrees on, their interpretation of those facts are not always going to be eye to eye the same only God can sort it out. And number two, because God can only sort it out, then what you have to do is forgive. It only matters that it ends. And this church is the problem with the world. Everyone wants to feel superior, and so they stay on their front porches and they mutter. The whole world is sinking into fragmented relational hell because everyone else is waiting for somebody else to make the first move. And Jesus is modeling a forgiveness that is audacious and assertive and that takes the initiative. Which leads to a second thing. Forgiveness is painfully sacrificial in nature. Forgiveness is painfully sacrificial in nature. In the parable of the prodigal son, the son has wronged the father in two ways. The first is financially. A third of the state is is, is gone. This family has... Has, has had a third of its wealth, its power, its influence, its, its resources in which to sustain itself and to grow itself, it's been squandered, it's never going to be retrieved. And the younger son has, has really lowered the economic viability of this family in ways that they're not going to recover. They are not in as strong a position as they had been in the past because of this son's selfishness. And then secondly, this, this kid has deeply disgraced his father. In a lot of ways, he's shown indifference to what the father thinks. He has shown disdain for the position of the father. And in this culture of this, this shame culture, this honor culture, this father has lost faith. He has lost honor because of his son's actions. And the father has has received a tremendous blow to the respect he commands in village life because of what this kid has done. He's lost some of his social capital. His respect in the village has taken a hit. And the only way that the son can come back is by dealing with this dual debt. This explains the things he's trying to say. Remember the little speech that he puts together when he's thinking about coming face to face with the father. He says, make me like a hired man, which assumes the responsibility for the financial debt that he created for the family. Saying, you know what, Father, I'm going to pay it back. And then secondly, he says, you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son, which assumes responsibility for the social and emotional debt he has created for the father. He says, I'm not going to assume that you will call me son, nor that you will want me to call you father. So this boy is trying to make good on the debts, but the father will not let him. Now, Stop there for a minute and take a step back. Pause for just a moment. Because there, there's, a, there's a bit of a, a caveat here. We, we need to remember the, the, the level at which this parable was meant to be read. It is constructed by Jesus to tell muttering Pharisees and us about you know, something, about the forgiveness and love of God. He is not talking in depth about how to resolve or fix dysfunctionality in people. He's talking about the nature of forgiveness, and the father's response is to run through the village to this boy, which you know, the, you know, the, this was a very demeaning thing for this father to do. Middle Eastern men do not run. In fact, um, you know, a Middle Eastern scholar by the name of Kenneth Bailey, uh, Bailey writes in a footnote about a friend of his in the Middle East today, even today, who said that he would have a hard time respecting the preacher of his church. Or was, or was actually having a hard time uh, uh, respecting the preacher of his church, not because he had seen him running down the street, but because he was walking down the street too fast. I mean, it, wasn't, it had nothing to do with running. Even walking too fast was undignified. It was undignified. It was undignified. Now let me assure you, I, you're never going to see me running down to the pulpit on Sunday mornings. But in the Middle East... The patriarch is not going to run to anyone. In a shame culture, an honor culture as this is, the inferior is always going to go to the superior. The lesser will always move to the greater. The superior never approaches the inferior in terms of the honor and the prestige. And yet this father, who is the patriarch, runs to the son as if the opposite was true. Now again, what in the world does that mean? Well... Uh, In the past, in in some of our Bible classes and, and, uh, you you know, through the years, I've talked about this little thing that happens in the Middle Eastern word. There is an action called kezaza, which declares, it's an action which declares that someone in a family or a village is now officially recognized not only by the family but by the village as being kicked out, as being disenfranchised, permanently estranged from this particular family and all the implications and ramifications for everybody else in, in the village. Now word has gotten out that this son is gone and he has taken his inheritance with him and he is now returning and in returning he's going to have to go through the gauntlet of the village to get to his home. And there is even to this day a danger that the ceremony of Kizaza will take place and he's going to be completely cut off from the family and from the village. And this father sees his son, he knows the danger of walking through the village, and he runs to the boy, and he pounces on him and knocks him down, and he kisses him again and again, which again is, is, which is an unnatural thing in the Middle Eastern world, but he's doing it to protect the boy with his forgiveness. He's not standing on pride, but he... But he is humiliating himself to do this. His forgiveness protects the boy from the danger of being cut off. Now believe me, in, in these ancient uh, Middle Eastern villages, there would be a crowd that would begin together to see what's going on. This Middle Eastern patriarch running through the village would cause you know everybody to drop what they're doing to go and to see what's going on. And the village would see this boy coming into their 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 streets and they're not sure what's going to happen next. I mean, what are they supposed to do? Is this going to be the moment where they pronounce that this boy is anathema to his family, that he's disenfranchised, that he has no social currency anymore with anybody, that he's dead to them? And the next thing they see is the father running and falling on this boy and kissing him again and again and again. And then he turns to the servants who have followed him down the road, and he tells him, Put the signet ring on the finger, meaning that he represents the family, in transactions again, put sandals on his feet because he's not a slave but a son, and put on the best robe, the father's robe, put that on him. And then he says, Go back and kill the fatted calf because we are, as a village, not going to cut him off, but as a community, a village, and a family, and an extended family, we're going to celebrate that this boy has come home. And in do, doing all of these things, the father is doing an incredibly significant thing in the eyes of everyone who saw it in the village. And believe me, it's not lost for a minute when Jesus tells this story. It is not lost for a minute on these muttering Pharisees. The father is absorbing the debt in himself. The father in his actions is saying, I will absorb the debt of wrongdoing on the part of my child in order for him to be brought back into the family. And that, my friends, is the essence of forgiveness. When someone wrongs us, it creates a debt. And there's there's always that debt. And you can either make them pay or you can absorb it all yourself. They pay or you pay. But somebody pays. Believe me, somebody pays. And in forgiveness, the Father absorbs the debt. The nature of this forgiveness is to absorb the pain rather than to inflict it. Now normally, if somebody hurts our reputation, what is it that we want to do? Word gets back to me that somebody has, has, has dragged the, the, my reputation or my wife's reputation or one of my kids' reputation through the mud. What's, what do you think it's going to be? What's the typical response going to be? We want to slice them up in front of others and get a little of our reputation back, right? Or if someone hurts us and diminishes our happiness causes us to suffer a little bit, then we create a little happiness for them in order to get a little of ours back. Friends, that's not forgiveness. That's ungodliness. Forgiveness is always about absorbing the pain. So, so how does He do it? Well, if the Father had been on the porch all that time, every day, and every time He thought about the Son, He clobbered Him, in his heart. Then when that son showed up, he would have clobbered him in the face. So what was he doing all those days on the porch? He'd been kissing the son in his heart all that time so that when the son showed up, he was able to literally kiss him. To clobber someone in your heart is to play the loop of what they did to hurt you over and over and over and over again in your mind. And every time you think about it, and every time you you, you relive those moments, and you hear those words being uh, said again, it, it stings, and it hurts, and you suffer, and it's ramped up, and it's ratcheted up over and over again. And what is it that you want to do? When you see them, you might not literally clobber them, but you avoid them, you don't speak to them, and sometimes you actually do want to hit them. Forgiveness is about loving them and praying for them. Forgiveness is about willing their good. It's imitating Jesus in this hard teaching He gave in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be called what? Sons of your Father in heaven. Now, there was reconciliation in this story because the father had forgiven the son, had absorbed the pain, and and, uh, uh, and in return brought him back into the family. Now, listen, I'm not saying that this is easy. I know it's not. I know this is difficult, and that's why we have to talk about this last component as we kind of close out tonight. The third is, you know, our forgiveness is always motivated by grace. The kind of forgiveness that heals relationship is powered from the inside. It is. When the father in the parable sees this son far off, we're told of something that happens on the inside of the the father. He is moved with compassion. Three or four years ago, I I pulled out a concordance and looked at how many times the word compassion was used to describe the emotional life of Jesus. And 14 times, Jesus is said to have been moved by compassion or to be full of compassion or somehow connected with compassion. Compassion means to be moved at the very center of your being in love for another person. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says, You know, when you see me, you see the Father. And it just makes sense to me that Jesus would use this signature emotion to describe the Father who represents God in this parable. And everyone, everyone, there's not a single person here that has not been hurt by someone they love. And we've all felt the same reaction. We never want to be hurt like that again. Yet, in this parable, This father runs to the son knowing that it's possible that the son could sin against him again. That's a real possibility. And it describes what God did experience when he came unto his own. John, in in the first chapter of that gospel, says he came, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own, what, did not receive him. Jesus humbled himself. He came into the world and was not received by the world, Jesus came into the world and was stripped naked on the cross. Jesus did not lose His dignity, but left His glory. And Jesus did not deal with the maybe being rejected. He was, he was butchered. Yet God, through Jesus, was falling on our neck and kissing us. Why? Because He was absorbing our debt of sin through compassion. So that God was able to make Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in that Jesus, in that Son, we might become the righteousness of God. Instead of clobbering us, God absorbed the pain in Himself to forgive us. Instead of putting us on the cross, He puts Himself. And we, <laughs> we really do owe God a lot. And He didn't, you know, He's looking at us, and you know what He sees? He doesn't see people that just messed up a third of the estate, but people who squandered all of creation, and God has absorbed the infinite debt of our sin. Why? So that He might kiss us. And if you see that He did that for you, then it motivates you to do the same. You know, there are two things that have to go on inside of you. The first thing is to resist the temptation to superiority. I mean, all our grudges, all our resentments, it's based on the feeling of being superior. You hurt me, therefore I'm better than you. And you can't stay mad. You can't stay mad unless you say, you know, I would never do that kind of a thing, I'm not that kind of person. But then you realize through God's grace that we're all pretty rotten and no one is perfect and we mess up royally on a, royal base, on a regular basis. And it takes the death of the Lord of the universe for us to be saved. And when you realize that, you're, you're just humbled by it. And then you know how you can and why you have to forgive. And secondly, you have to release that person. Not just stop you know, resisting the temptation to feel superior. You have to release them from the liability. You think the person who hurt you owes you, so you ride them a little bit harder, you push them a little harder, you make them jump through smaller and smaller hoops, and you make them jump through more and more hoops. And forgiveness, you release them from the debt because on the inside, you have a relationship with God through grace that's like having a trillion dollars in the bank. And if you have a trillion dollars in the bank, then forgiving $100 is nothing. And once you realize everything and you know and you begin to perceive everything that you have in Christ, it makes you richer, makes you feel richer than a trillionaire. I mean, what can anyone do to you when compared to what you have in Christ? And when we as a church employ Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, then I think something really special happens. Our fellowship transforms people into relationships you know, that, that are three-dimensional. When somebody hurts us and we don't forgive, somebody makes us suffer and we don't deserve it, at least in our mind we don't deserve it and we don't, we don't forgive, what we do in essence is turn them into a, a, a two-dimensional caricature of themselves. We've really flattened them out. And what that means basically is, you know that person lied to me, so he's a liar. That, that person betrayed me well, that that person's just a fake. That person misrepresented me in a conversation. You know what they are? They're just a gossip. And when you take them from three-dimension to two-dimension, then you really don't have to deal with them any longer. Why? Because they're an idiot. But forgiveness creates a community of reconciliation. We're letting people come free of their past the way god let the apostle paul come free of his murderous violent legalistic mean-spirited past in which people people lost their lives god was forgave paul in christ jesus you ever wonder How Paul was ever, once he realized that he was persecuting the church, that he was actually acting against God, and he was there when Stephen was stoned, and he was on his way to put all kinds of people, women, men, and children in prison. How is it that Paul, who has done such heinous, terrible things, is able to go on with his life in light of what he understands about the cross? It's because he knows that God is kissing him. And because of forgiveness, the Father in this story is able to say, My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was dead, but now he's alive. He's dead, but now he's alive. What's that sound like? Dead, but alive. Dead, but now alive. Resurrection. Through the forgiveness of Jesus... Through the forgiveness of Jesus, a real resurrection is, is is possible. The question is, the question is, do you see God as that kind of Father? What Jesus is doing in this story is letting us know the way God really is in His heaven and the way He looks at you and me. I don't know about you, but... You know, when I think about worship, I don't think about an hour on Sunday mornings or on Sunday nights. And I don't think about singing X number of songs or making it through a 30-minute sermon or eating some bread and drinking some, some grape juice and you know, sitting with some people that I may or may not know or even like very well. You know what I think of when I think of worship? I think about talking about how great God is. I think, about, I think about talking about God in inspired ways. And I'm not talking about the Pentecostal type inspiration. I'm talking about the kind of inspiration that comes when a truth, the greatest of truths, truths that are worth, worth more than gold itself, finally begin to hit us and impact our lives. And we are moved, not just in our thinking, but in our heart to become different individuals because of that truth, that action, that reality. And when I think about worship, I think about being inspired by the greatness of God and allowing the overflow of emotion and of of, of knowledge and and of joy and rejoicing and praise that's overflowing in my heart and mind, coming out through my mouth and, and raising it up and talking about how great God really is. And, and and you know, in LTG, we, we have this question. The very first question on our list of questions is, this week did you show the greatness of Jesus in your life? When I think about discipleship, I don't think about all of the things that I don't do anymore, that I can't do anymore, as if, you know, these things are being withheld from me. I think about a life that I get to live that somehow emulates, touches the hem of the garment of the life that changed me. And that somehow... Through God's grace, somebody, anybody might be able to see through my life, my joy, my happiness, my contentment, my my sense of of well being and of confidence and courage and bravery in a in a world like this, they might be able to see just the tinge of the greatness of Jesus in my life and in yours. Jeff, you ready to lead us in the song? Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And if there's any way that I, our church can minister to you tonight, whether it be through baptism or whether it be through prayer or through counsel or anything that, that is troubling your heart or anything that, that might, you might need some counsel about, our shepherds are going to be down at the front. We'd like for you to come down and talk to them now and let those needs be known. Let's stand and worship God together.